be in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 12 through 15, and then uh, also um, John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, and uh, verse 24. Again, so we're going to be starting uh, in John 15, uh, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Verse seven, or chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed." And chapter, or verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Jordan. Well, good afternoon, Doxology. It's great to be back with you. For those of you who are new, joining us for the first time, a warm welcome to you. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here, and really glad that you're with us, uh, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey. And What we're doing this fall is we are walking through a series called The Image of God Becoming Fully Human. And the purpose of this series is to equip you guys to navigate this challenging cultural moment that we find ourselves in where there's a lot of confusion over how do I understand myself? How do I treat those who are different than me, especially those who strongly disagree with me on very thorny issues? And what we saw in week one is that foundational to understanding yourself and what it means to be human is to grasp that you are made in the image of God. That the reason that you exist is to reflect God and to represent him. So you don't have value because of your physical attractiveness or because of your career accomplishments, but because you are made in God's image. And then in week two, we saw the image of God doesn't just apply to you, but also your neighbor. Every person around you has unspeakable worth because they are made in the image of God. And we saw how this gives us the only foundation for justice and how this radically changes how we treat everybody. And then the next two weeks, we looked at the forces that distort the image of God, so sin, powers, and trauma. And What we hope that you're beginning to see is that the image of God isn't just this fact that we want you to be aware of, like, oh yeah, water is wet, but we want you to to start seeing this as a category through which to view all of life through, if you're going to live and love as Jesus does. And as we turn the corner a little bit today, moving from first principles to how how does this reality play itself out, what we're seeing this afternoon is that At the top of the list of what it means that you are made in God's image is the fact that you are relational, that you are made for relationship. 
Now, I don't know if you've read the book 1984. I was forced to read it as a high schooler. It was part of my, you know, summer. I see some of you shaking your head. I was forced to read it as part of my summer reading list, and at the time I was working as a golf attendant in this very aristocratic country club. And so on, during lulls on my shift, which were many, I read this book. And I was reminded this week, I was listening to a sermon series on relationship by Pastor James Forsyth, who used to pastor in this area, who was helpful for me on this series. And he reminded me of something that I forgot from the book. And so 1984, for those of you who haven't read it, or maybe you've blocked it out from your memory, it tells a story of this dystopian future where state power is massive and powerful. And essentially, free thought, art, all individuality is suppressed, and something that one of the characters makes a comment on is it's, it's not just that the state wants to sever trust between spouses, between parents and children, but a mark of this dystopian future is that there will be no friends. Like, that is a goal of this dystopia, is for there to be no friends. And on that vein, I think 1984, you know, even though it was written, I think, mid-20th century, was as prophetic about that with respect to our age as it has been prophetic about a number of other things. So, I mean, just a few years ago, um, some of you may have seen this in the news when it happened, but in the UK, they appointed a minister of loneliness, is her title, and that's because they saw that millions of people in the UK were self-reporting feeling lonely most or all of the time. Uh, Over 200,000 elderly reported that they hadn't spoken to a family member or a loved one in over a month. And in our own nation, we're seeing self-reports of loneliness skyrocketing between, you know, adults and children alike. A recent statistic, apparently, with children is that children are spending an average of five minutes a day outside with just unstructured play with friends, but seven and a half hours in front of screens. And then... Another data point, which isn't funny at all, it's really sad, is some of you may be aware of this, maybe you've known about it for a while, but it's a, it's a trend where more and more people are saying that they aren't, they aren't attracted to real people, but only fictional characters. And the term for this is fictosexual. So where they form relationships, you know, it might be on an anime, it might be in some, you know, a manga or a story they're reading, or maybe a live action film. A number of people have made dolls of these characters and have formed, like, marriage licenses and have married fictional characters. And, and this isn't just, a, you know, friending of, a, like, one dude's doing this over here, but, I mean, ten, tens of thousands of people are now practicing life this way. And so, I mean, I think 1984, sadly, has proved to be fairly true about the relational life and the, the era that we live in. And as usual, Jesus invites us into something better. He invites us into something better, and he invites us to then invite other people into his kingdom to live out what real relationships look like. And so we'll look at this theme of relationship through four movements. And so first we'll see you need relationships. Number two, we'll see relationships are hard. Number three, Jesus redeems relationships. And then number four, Others need you. Okay, so you need relationships. Relationships are hard and painful. Jesus redeems relationships, and others need you. Okay, so first, number one, you need relationship. 
So uh, hopefully you have your Bible with you. Open it up to John 17, the second part of the scripture reading. And here we're going to mainly focus on verse 5 and verse 24. So this is Jesus' final prayer before he's betrayed and arrested and crucified. He's with his close friends at a dinner table. And he prays in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then if you can go to verse 24, this is all the same prayer. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. That's incredible. And then here, but here's what we're focusing on today. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And what I love about this prayer of Jesus is that it gives us an alluring peek into the inside of the inner workings of the Trinity. And what we see Jesus talking about here where, okay, in verse 5, the glory I had with you, God, before the world existed. And then verse 24, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What Jesus is saying is from all eternity past, he has been pouring love and adoration into God the Father. God the Father has been pouring honor and delight into Jesus the Son. And in John 16, the chapter right before this, uh, if you want to read it later, John 16, verse 14, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is participating in this dynamic as well. So in summary, what Jesus is teaching here is that of all the religions and faith traditions in the world, only Christianity says that God is triune, meaning God is one God, but existing in a community of himself with three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all pouring mutual and boundless degrees of honor love, and delight into one another. You say, okay, that's high. So what? You know, what's the cash value? Here's the cash value. So if God is eternal, and he's eternally existed in a community of persons, and this community created the world, and Jesus says these three things are true. If these three things are true, and they are, What this means is that love and friendship are eternal, okay? Love and friendship are at the heart of things. And how I heard one pastor put it is he he pointed out the fact that friendship, love relationships, and as we say love relationships throughout the sermon, don't just think romantic, think like full spectrum of love relationships, mainly we're thinking about friendship today. Most things in life are created. So you and I are created entities, Fire pits are created. Dinners are created. Going on walks are created. Friendship, right, because God has eternally existed in a community of love relationships in himself, friendship is eternal. So when you do sit around a fire pit with friends, and you sit around a dinner table, or you meet someone for coffee, or you go on a walk with another person, you are entering into something that is eternal, And it's only Christianity that speaks to this. So if you look at a lot of Eastern religions, they'll say that God is an impersonal force. So you don't have love at the heart of reality there. If you look at our secular culture, um, for the most part, I know like we're still trying to, to figure it out, but by and large, people will say the universe came about through impersonal forces of violence, right? So physical forces coming together, balls of gas, big bang, then a process of the strong eating the weak. So in our secular culture, at the heart of reality 
is power and violence. It's only Jesus, it's only the God of the Bible who says, at the heart of things is love. And so if you've ever thought to yourself, like, it seems like love is important. Like, it's more important than power. It's more important than success. It, it's more than what I can put my hands around. You're right. Okay, no other religion, no other way of viewing the world says that love is at the heart of things. Love is eternal. Love is what matters most. But it does. And you know it does. And so not only does this give us a radically unique appreciation for friendship and for the God who made us, right, and why love matters so deeply, but now as we think about applying this, okay, so in Genesis one twenty six, so it's been like the theme verse of this series, you could say. So when God creates man and woman, he says, let us, notice the plural, let us, the triune God, let us make man in our image. So if you are made in God's image and he is a relational God, then what this means is you prioritizing relationships. It's not like this thing that you do only if you feel like it, right? Or it's, it's not just this thing you do if, you know, you're an extrovert or if you're an Enneagram six or seven or if, Sitting on the sofa with Netflix and takeout sounds, it doesn't sound more appealing. <laughs> okay, to become fully human, like all of us need to prioritize relationship. And the negative effects of the absence of relationship speaks to this. So, I mean, a number of studies have been done on loneliness now, and dementia, high blood pressure, depression are all strongly correlated with loneliness. A study out of Brigham Young found that. Loneliness is as significant a correlation with early death as smoking 15 packs of cigarettes a day. And this makes sense. If we are made in God's image and he's relational, right? If we deprive ourselves of that or if we deprive others of that, there's going to be breakdown. And so just, just a question for you. And, and I understand for some of you, for various reasons, relationships may be really hard. And we're going to get to that in a minute. Okay, so we're not saying like you need to jump into super vulnerable, intimate relationships tomorrow. But we just need to at least open ourselves up to the fact that being relational is more fundamental to who we are than our career success, than how many people approve of us, than me time. I love me time. And extroverts, me time is important, right? But me time isn't at the heart of who we are. So just, just a question for you is, as you think about the rhythms of your week, do you prioritize relationships more than you do your career, more than you do me time? Do you have people that you share ordinary life with? And I'm not talking about your family or somebody you're paying. Okay, do you have other people who you just share the mundane rhythms of life, highs and lows? And I was reminded of this a few weeks ago, as Kelsey and I, um, we went through the hardest thing that we've gone through as a couple in a while. And my discipleship group came around me and cared for me. Uh, one of them had, de had dinner delivered to our house. Uh, I called up Andrew, one of our elders, and I was just like, hey man, I, can I just see you? 
Like, I just, I need a friend. And I met with him, and I shared what I was angry about and tempted by and the things I was ashamed of. And he sat there, and he grieved with me, and he spoke truth to me, and he somehow even gave me a few laughs. And, like, this was reinvigorating to my soul in a way that doubling down on my career or just shutting out the world would have done. Okay, and so it is for you. Made in God's image, you need relationships. Everything about our pace of life encourages the opposite. Okay, but you need relationship, point one. Number two, something many of you are already thinking, but relationships are hard. Okay, relationships are hard. Now, the last two, le- two weeks, we've been looking at uh, Genesis 3, right? The fall of humanity. And notice in Genesis 3, when humanity decides to rival God, right, rather than reflect him, when they decide to turn in on themselves and not love one another, the Bible doesn't say, here are five doctrinal truths about what happens when we sin. No, what it does is it paints a picture of the pain in relationships that takes place due to the broken world we now inhabit due to sin. So it shows humanity hiding in shame from God. Okay, how many of you have ever hidden in shame from God? It shows Adam and Eve, right, once intimate, vulnerable lovers, now turning on one another. And then the very next chapter, chapter 4, it shows Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. Cain murders his brother Abel. And then we're just off to the races from there, and it only gets worse. And Dr. John alluded to this last week, but what's so helpful about this is that the Bible from the earliest pages acknowledges that relationships are really painful, all right? This is why Jesus came to take care of sin and to bring us into relationship from him. So you will have people who will say cutting words to you that you can never unhear, Right, you'll have family members and friends who hold political convictions or theological convictions that are just impossible for you to comprehend. You'll show kindness to an individual for weeks, maybe years, and then they'll just act like none of it mattered. Okay, relationships are painful. Okay, because we're all sinners, but also relationships aren't just painful because we're sinners. Relationships are also painful just because people are crazy. Like, people are weird. Just a couple examples from, from my life. So, I remember uh, one, one person I was in relationship with, I was meeting with him, you know, every week or two. And for every question I would ask him, he would respond by talking quickly nonstop for 45 minutes. So, if, if I knew, okay, we have 90 minutes, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I better choose my two questions very carefully <laughs> because that's all I'm going to have time for. Okay, I get ask you two questions, and then you'll be talking the whole time, and then we're going to have to leave. It drove me bonkers. Hey, another uh, pastor friend I have, so I, like, anytime I text him, he never responds. He's one of those people he, who's amazing when you're with them in person, right? Like, makes you feel like you're the only person in the world, but then just never replies. I don't Maybe this is just me. Hopefully not. Okay, but he never replies to my text messages, but then he'll, he'll call me on a Saturday 24 hours before a church service. He's like, hey man, I'm on vacation and I forgot to get the pulpit covered and I know you have an evening service, so you're free tomorrow morning. Can you come preach for me? I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Okay, people are weird. I'm weird. You're weird. People are crazy, right? So relationships are hard. And so just something to keep in mind here on a more serious note is if if you're in the middle of a really hard relationship, okay, it might be 
a family relationship. It might be a work-related relationship. It might be the absence of a relationship that you really wish you had, a friendship or romantic. And especially, perhaps, if you're in a really hard marriage right now, what God tells you in the scriptures is it doesn't mean there's anything particularly strange or unfortunate about you and your story. And it certainly doesn't mean God doesn't care. It's the ache we all feel as we wait for Jesus to renew the world. Renewed relationships being part of that renewed creation. Okay, which leads to point three. Okay, so if relationships are hard, we need someone to do something about it. So point three, Jesus redeems relationships. So let's go to uh, John 15. This is all in the same conversation he's having with his disciples. John 13 through 17 covers that. So let's read uh, verse 12 through 15 again. So Jesus is looking at his close ring of friends, and he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Okay, so this is incredible. So we're going to come back to this in just a second. So if you can please bring up Genesis 3 on the screen. So we talked about Genesis 3 is where we see painful relationships enter the world. Well, in the middle of this, God looks at the serpent, the one who sowed discord uh, between people and God and with one another, and God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first picture of the gospel we see in all of scripture. So when Jesus tells the serpent, an offspring of the woman, he's talking about a human being who will come through Eve's line will bruise or crush the serpent's head, and the serpent shall bruise his heel. Meaning he's, he's telling Satan, you're going to harm this individual, but he's going to crush your head. And where we see this fulfilled is at the cross, right? Where Satan, he, he harms Jesus, he bruises his heel, but Jesus crushes, by doing so, Jesus crushes his head. A lot we could say here, but just all I want you to see for now is at the same moment the Bible shows us the relationships are so painful and hard, God also comes in and gives a promise where he says, I'm going to do something about these painful relationships that you experience. And God holds true to this promise, right? All throughout the Old Testament, and then here in John 15, we see the fulfillment of this promise come when, when Jesus comes. And he looks at his disciples, and he says, No longer do I call you servants, but I call you my friends, and greater love has known than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. So to get the force of this, he's telling his disciples, I'm going to die for you. And to get the, to force of, the force of this, you have to remember anew the people he's looking at as he tells him this. Okay, so one of them has already sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And all the rest are either going to deny or run away from Jesus as he's arrested and crucified. Okay, these, these guys are cowards. They are the picture of failed friends. But then you pan over to Jesus, and he gives us a very different picture. Okay, so if the love story between Jesus and us, if you look at it from Jesus' perspective, his love towards us is a love that's unrequited. Okay, it's a love that we don't give back in return. But if you look at it from our vantage point, the love that Jesus gives to us, 
It's a love that he gives you to the end. And so, and this is the gospel. What you're meant to do is you're meant to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples at this final meal and look Jesus in the eye, as it were, as he looks at you and says, even though you awful, you often rival God rather than reflect God, right? even though you're often indifferent toward me, even though you often ignore me, even though you often, in a very tragic way, tend to hurt those that you love the most, come be my disciple. Come be my disciple. Because once I set my love on you, there is nothing that can dislodge it. Not a million failures. You can deny me. You can fail to bear witness about me. You can hurt those you love so much around you. I lay down my life for you because I no longer call you my servant, but I call you my friend. And the cross is the greatest act of friendship that the world has ever seen, where he goes to the cross and in taking on your sin and then rising from the dead, he brings you into love relationship with him, where your joy and intimacy with him grow with each passing week, and then you're able to then go and extend that love to others. So let's go back to at the beginning where we looked at Jesus telling us that God is triune, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit pouring boundless honor, love, delight into one another mutually for all eternity. Uh, George MacDonald has this beautiful line where he, and you can uh, go and pull up the slide, where he says, Jesus at Calvary at the cross did in the wild weather of his outlying provinces that which he had done at home in glory and gladness. At the cross, Jesus did in the wild weather of his outlying provinces what he had done at home in glory and gladness. Meaning, if it's still hitting you in the face as it did for me for hours, When Jesus goes to the cross, this isn't a break in his normal pattern of love. It's the very continuation of it. Okay, because from eternity past, all he's done in his very being is pouring out self-sacrificial love and devotion toward the Father and toward the Holy Spirit. So when he goes to the cross, he says, in the wild weather, right, at Calvary, what he's been doing from all eternity. That's incredible. And so then when he brings you into that communion with the Trinity, as it were, which he does— right, when you trust in Jesus, he brings you into that dance, as it were, that dynamic, as it were, and then empowers you to then go out and do it for others. And this is why Jesus redeems relationship, because of anyone in the world, the one person who had, like, the fullest grounds to be cynical about relationships was Jesus. Okay, he did nothing but love, and they either killed him or stood by the side as it happened, but he loved them the same, and he loves you the same. And then so he invites you through his power to be the individual and to create a kind of community that serves as an appetizer, as it were, of the age to come when all relationships are made right. Okay, so relationships are, they're they're so hard. I mean, the most painful things in life are relationship, right? Relationships we don't have or harm that comes in relationships we do have. Jesus redeems it, and then so in light of that, it's not just you need relationships, but others need you, okay? Others need you. So you need relationships, yes, but have you ever considered that, you know, when you think about 
sending somebody a text message, asking someone to hang out, coming to church, going to community group. Usually we do it through the lens of, do I feel like it? Am I busy? Am I stressed out? Those, those are fine questions. But I th- at least if I think about myself, rarely do we think about it through the lens of, actually, maybe I don't feel like I need this tonight. But what if somebody else needs you? And this is why Jesus says in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. He's saying, as I've done for you and continue to do, do for you, now you go do and do for others, okay, regardless of their quality. And so a few applications as we think about others needing you, right, and you getting to be a tangible picture and presence of this Trinitarian love that Jesus has brought you into. Let's just think of a, a couple categories of people, right, that we can do this for. The first people would be, the first group would be the difficult, right? So I imagine each of you is in a difficult or a plethora of difficult relationships, where there is a person, they're just, they're, they are so, so hard to love. And often what we do is we keep a scorecard in our head. Okay, well, like, I did A, B, C, D, E, F for you, and you've done nothing but the opposite toward me, so maybe I'm just going to wait around and wait for you to treat me, treat me right. But is that Jesus how loved you? With, with all due respect, is that, how, is that how Jesus loved me? And so what he invites you to do is in these relationships to show them a love that's only possible if, you, if you've received it from an otherworldly self, and you have, if you know Jesus, right? Where you love them regardless of what they're doing to you or not doing in return. Okay, and that will look differently depending on different relationships, but that's the principle that we need to look at. And see if as you do this, guys, it doesn't begin to make things look a little less like 1984 and a little bit more like heaven. Relationships are hard, as we hear my son crying in the back. Okay, so the difficult, the lonely, the lonely. So we'll get into this a little bit more next week as we look at how our sexuality images God. So teaser for next week. What in the world does that even mean? You'll have to come and find out. So Rebecca McLaughlin, she's done a lot of great work on this. And what she points out is that in our world, like, you are bombarded with the message that the most intimate, joy-filled relationships are the romantic and the sexual. And, like, to a great degree, you can't even be fully human, let alone live a happy and full life, if you aren't in a sexual or romantic relationship. And if the church is to reclaim the beauty of the sexual vision that Jesus gives us, we have to start by showing that the most intimate, deepest relationships in life aren't romantic, but are friendship and family in the church. How do we know? Because Jesus says it right here. Verse 13. Other places too, but we're right here. So greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So think, if Jesus just said greater love has no one than this, and he said, now you all fill in the blank. I think most people would say greater love is no one than this, than a husband's love for his wife, than a woman's love for her lover, than a mom's love for her child. What does Jesus say? He says that someone laid down his life for his friends. He's saying the most intimate, deep relationships we can have are friendship. 
You guys may have a lot of questions about that right now, so think of this as part one, moving into next week, but I at least first want to open our, our minds to this possibility. And so just as we think about the lonely, right, and now take this in a context, you know, even broader than people's sexual and romantic lives, if we were to create the kind of community where people can find real intimacy, right, in real relationship, regardless of if they're single or married, okay, relationship, it has to be something we prioritize outside of just showing up to church on Sunday and going to community group one out of the other six days a week. Many of you guys do an amazing job at this, but this needs to, this needs to be a culture that we continue to grow. Just a couple months ago, guys, um, someone in this church, they told me, they said, I do not think I would still be a Christian if it, were, if it weren't for people in doxology. Okay, so this isn't just theory. Like, this is, this is already happening, okay? And so relationships, they matter for other people, too, especially the lonely, and that's going to be all of us at various points in our life. Okay, so in light of all this, okay, others need you, just something to, to hold on to as we walk out of here is the small moments matter. Okay, the, the small moments matter. So what I mean by this is if you want to be there for someone in their most difficult moments, you have to be there in the thousand ordinary moments in between. It, it's, it's just how life and relationships tend to work. Right? And so because what happens is, is we, we do the coffee meetups, we do the dinners, we do the fire pits, we go to church, we do the community group, and then in the midst of that, other things happen. And then because you've spent the thousand ordinary moments, now you're there with them, and there's a level of trust there for you to be, for th- be there for them when it's hard. And so all this to say is you think about the times that you don't want to go to community group because you're stressed or you're tired. You don't want to go to church because you feel busy. You had said yes to that dinner or that work invite two months ago, and then 30 minutes before the event, you're like, why in the world did I say yes? My sofa looks so much more fun. <laughs> like, how can I cancel and not be, not be a jerk? Those moments matter. Okay, those moments when you say yes, they matter. So let's do the reps. Don't be flaky. Don't cancel last minute, okay, because we do these reps with one another, and then we begin to develop the kind of intimacy and real relationship in this church that looks more like heaven and gives life to anyone who comes in here by God's power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for bringing us into love relationship to you. Uh, This is so hard, and it can be confusing, and we are so self-centered. And so I thank you for your unrelenting commitment to us and your patience with us. And I pray that you will help us in our individual lives and our corporate lives to uh, learn to love like this in the way that Jesus is showing us and has done from eternity past. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.